see nowadays about information and about journalism and about how we know stuff. One of the things that I heard in this story was, uh, obviously a story like this is full of anonymous sources. And this makes sense. The article is about how these three men hate each other. None of these three men are going to go on record and say, yes, I hate that guy, right? It's going to be anonymously sourced. They'll talk to different people on the team, but nobody will put their name on it because that would be dangerous to their career. And I saw people that said, it's totally a fake story. It's not real. Unless there's a named source, there's no way that it's true. Okay, this is just patently untrue. We've had lots of good stories like Watergate that only happened because unnamed sources, right? Um, and the flip side is it seemed very naive to me. Some people said, I'll only believe it if they admit to it in a public press release. Yes, because the New England Patriots are prone to making their organization look bad on public press reports, right? Like there would never be any line that would come out of the PR office of an NFL team. Never, right? Nobody would ever lie. And I find it interesting in as much as it's part of a broader issue and conversation that we're having in our culture about how to understand what's real, Right? you are probably very, very tired of reading about fake news. Because it seems like anything I don't like is fake news, and anything I do like is real news, right? And we kind of have gotten to this point where if there's any information that's disturbing to me, well, that must not be real. And it really has caused a lot of problems in our culture around this issue. It's a big word, but this issue of epistemology. Okay, what does epistemology mean? Uh, epistemology is the philosophical study of what do we know and how do we come to know it. How can you explore the world? How can you understand the world? How do you know anything? How do you learn something? And what sources can be trusted to give you information about stuff? And this is really kind of an important issue for us to deal with, an important issue for us to talk about, because we live in a world where it seems like nobody knows anything anymore. And that there's no ability to talk about facts, there's no ability to talk about what's real, all that we have is just sort of blind guesses. And this sort of destabilization of our epistemology, to use fancy language, or this uncertainty around how we learn things and know things, can lead us to feeling like we're just kind of in this, this soup, this, this moral grayness that we don't understand and that we can't process. And this is a particular problem for Christians in a whole variety of ways, okay? Let me show you a few ways, if you're not convinced that you should care yet, about the eroding of our understanding of what we know and how we know it. Here's a couple places it comes uh, into play. Uh, we have this ridiculous sort of science versus creation debate where the question is, can we trust empirical science or can we trust scripture? As if those two things are totally against one another. And there's these deep issues about how do we learn and how do we know. Some say, how can I trust science? How can a scientist understand something that happened billions of years ago that they weren't there or present for? Other people will say, well, I don't care what it says. I mean, I don't care what you think the Bible says. Why should I listen to the Bible? Why is the Bible a source of information that I should listen to? And there's kind of this push and pull of how we learn and, and, and what we learn. Um, it comes into our issues of historicity. When we talk about Scripture and people say, well, 
did you you really believe Jesus is a real person? And you go, well, of course I believe Jesus is a real person. And they go, well, what proof do you have? And there's this push and pull of what kind of evidence do we need? How do we deal with evidence that comes from a biased source? Is there such a thing as an unbiased source? How much physical or archaeological evidence do you need to have for a person or an event before you're willing to admit that it's history? Uh, we have this issue of personal experience. How do we deal with personal experience versus other forms of knowledge? Right? And it's really interesting. There's some areas of life where we say, well, we shouldn't invalidate someone's experience. If that's what they experience, it's real. But then on the religious things, often someone goes, oh, that's just, it's just in your head. It's just something you experienced. You can't prove it. It's sort of this personal piety thing. How do those things play with each other? Uh, how do we deal with institutions too, right? We live in a world now where there is an open conversation about whether or not you can believe the media or whether or not you can believe statistics, whether or not you can believe polling, whether or not uh, research institutions and universities are doing their job or if they're too biased. There's conversations about the church. Can the church be a reliable source of information? All this stuff we are fighting and arguing about knowledge and how you acquire it and what it looks like. I cannot untangle that problem today, but I do want to take a look at a psalm that is about this topic. Okay, we think about psalms and we think about you know praise and worship music. We don't tend to think about the psalms as answering questions of philosophical depth, like how you know what's the form of your epistemology. But there is a psalm that talks about three ways that we learn stuff. And it kind of lays out sort of this Jewish perspective of what are the ways that you gain information and what does it tell you about the world and why can you trust it. And I just want to spend some time in that because at the very least it will give us a 101 course, a little refresher on what the Bible talks about when it says what we know and how we come to know it. And then hopefully that can help us a little bit in the world that we live in. All right, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and it makes circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So the first thing the psalmist tells us, he says the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, and then the, the writer goes on to say, you know, we don't, we don't hear from nature. Nature isn't capable of audible speech, but it still speaks very clearly. There's this idea that one of the for, uh, sources of knowledge that we have is just observing the world around us. That when you look at the sun rising in the sky, it should tell you something about the world you live in and what is real and what is true. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this as well. Uh, Romans 1, he's talking about why even non-believers have some understanding of God and he says they have it because they can see nature. And anybody who can see nature understands something about God. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, maybe you've um, had this experience. You're talking to somebody about what you believe about Christianity, what you believe about spirituality, and they give you this answer, usually in hushed tones and maybe a like West Coast California accent, right? Man, for me, spirituality is like nature. Like, you know, I go out and I experience like I get on a mountaintop and I like look at the sun and then I hear the crashing of the waves, man. And that is how I know that God is real. Sometimes in organized religion, we like to make fun of this a little bit. Maybe I even just did a little bit because, you know, we just we kind of have a different way of processing these things. The interesting thing is this is a legitimate way to understand some parts of spirituality. The psalmist is saying these very things. He says, look up at the sky, hang out in nature, look around, and you will learn something about the universe. And the very thing that Paul says we'll learn in Romans is the thing that people often get from this. They go, I look up at the night sky and I realize how small I am. That's what you should realize is that you're really small and that God is really big. Uh, to this day, within the uh, apologetic conversations about the existence or non-existence of God, the nature of the cosmos, the way that it runs, the way that it operates, how it's organized, is a major conversation topic as far as is there a God or not. Even famous atheists um, like Flew will say, I just looked at the human intellect and how human brains work. And I could not convince myself that mere accident and chance could make that happen. It looks to me like there's something designed there. And if it's designed, there is a designer, right? And so in all of this, the psalmist tells us one of the ways that we understand the world around us is just by looking at nature and just experiencing it. And understanding that it's glory and it's beauty and it's majesty, that there is something that is beyond us and bigger than us. And that's one thing that we can know and that's one way we come to know it. Psalmist continues uh, with another way we know. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold. They are more pure uh, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Um, this can feel really abrupt. Uh, it probably doesn't feel as abrupt because I've already given you the intro that this psalm is about ways we come to know. But if you didn't know that, reading this psalm, this seems like an odd transition. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sun comes up and goes down in its circuit. By the way, let me tell you about the word of the Lord. You're like, what? But here the author is just transitioning to another way that he or she has come to know God or know about the universe. And that is the word of God, uh, the law of God. And I think that it, we do well here to take scripture and kind of fit it within this concept. And what the author says, simply enough, is that we know we, the Word of God teaches us and we know we can trust it as a source of information because it works, right? The author continually talks about all the ways your life is better and joyful if you have the Word of God. If you go through his list there, 
The psalmist says that when we listen to God's word, when we read scripture, we're refreshed, we're wise, we're joyous, we experience glory. Our life is long-lasting and sustainable, and it adds value to who we are and what we do. The author says you want to know about the world? Listen to the word of God, because when you do the things the word of God tells you to do, it prevent, um, creates fruit. It creates good things in your life. Um, it's interesting because we will often hear people say in these conversations about what we know and how we come to know it. Why should I believe the Bible? And how do you even trust the Bible that you have? How do you know where it came from? And in many ways, this is the answer to both of those questions. It just has a pragmatic quality adder to your life that things are better. Um, and to some degree... Um, you know, in some ways, this is something you have to experience, right? This is what people who follow Jesus experience is listening to the word of God and how it benefits their life. But to some degree, this is understood even by non-Christians. There are very few people in the world anymore who look at treat others as you want to be treated and go, oh, that's bad advice, right? Like generally speaking, as a, as a planet, we have accepted this to be true. Uh, we even have corporations now that are selling themselves based on we we apply the golden rule. I forget it. Some financial services group is doing this now, right? And so there's this idea of it just it works for you. It 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 brings quality into your life. And when people say, well, where do you get where they but where, where did you pick those books from? Well, one of the reasons they picked the books they picked is because of this sort of reverse logic of what book is creating life. What book, when you study it and you devote yourself to it and you listen to it and you follow the advice in it, what writings bring life to Christians? And so when they got to a book they were kind of unsure about, like Second Peter, they said, well, what's our experience of studying and following Second Peter? And people would say, I found that it gives me life the same way reading the book of Genesis brings me life. The same way the Psalms have brought me life and beauty and joy and sustainability and all of those kinds of things. And so the psalmist is telling us that there's this second way we learn. We can look at nature and learn something about the way the cosmos is from the beauty of creation around us. But we also can learn something about the world when we listen to God's word. And we know that that's trustworthy because when you do it, it makes things better. Third thing. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, this last source of knowledge is the most untrustworthy one, but it's still listed. The author says, you know, as I process this stuff, God, I know that I can fool myself. There are things that I think are good ideas that I realize are not good ideas. I'm sure we've all done something that we go, oh, that's not a big deal. Or, no, oh, that, that'll be fine. And in the back of your head, you're like, no, it's not going to be fine, but I want to do it, right? You've had those moments where you just make unwise decisions. And the author here says, this is the way things work. There will be times where you'll deceive yourself. But still, your brain is part of this process. And so we ask for God to help it. May the meditations of my heart, right? May they, may they honor you, God. 
Because ultimately, whether we're looking at nature, whether we're looking at God's word, whether we're looking at a website, whatever it is, it still it has to work in our brains, okay? Ultimately, there has to be a logic. People do not give themselves and do things to stuff they're, com they're convinced makes no sense whatsoever, right? They might do things about things they're uncertain about. But, you know, you're just, nobody is going to convince you to do certain things if it doesn't work in your brain. Ultimately, your own logic is a part of how this stuff works. And so the psalmist ends this psalm by saying, I look at nature and it teaches me. I look at scripture and it teaches me. And I also look inside and look through my own understanding of the world and process it. Please help those processes to honor you. Because I know it's a fallible instrument, but it's the only instrument I have. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. This is really seen well in this example in Acts, right? Where the early church is trying to make this very important decision. And when they're done making the decision, they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything except the following. And they give a list of things to burden them with. Um, it's interesting that they say it seemed best to us and the Holy Spirit. We put this into our brain. We took the information from Scripture. We took our experience. We took all this info, and we grinded it up the best that we could in our processor. And this is what we think is best. Whenever you are thinking about the world around you, you have to do that. You have no option. God does not give you a thinking mechanism outside of your own brain. And so ultimately, our own logic does play into how we understand the world and how we understand what's going on um, around us. As we talk about those things, I, I want to just draw a couple. So this is, that's basically the psalm. We read the whole psalm. We learn about the nature of the universe from looking at nature, and we understand something about God from nature. We read God's word, and it proves itself to be trustworthy because it benefits us. And then ultimately, we pray that God helps us to meditate and think and learn in healthy and good ways. I think there's a few lessons that I, want to, I just want to draw out of it, hopefully to make it a little more practical. When we get in these quandaries about what's true, what's real, who can I trust, what can I listen to, how do I process faith versus science versus the media versus culture and all those kinds of things. Um, the first one is, and I want to be careful how I say this, there is a way in which the concept of Scripture alone is not itself scriptural. Okay? Often in the New Testament, when they came to a decision, they didn't open up the Bible and say, oh, look, here's a chapter and verse, that's what we do. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? That's not what they did. They said, okay, well, we've got all these scriptures, and we have these situations that we're experiencing, and we have what it feels like the Holy Spirit is saying, and then we have our own understanding of it, our own wrestling with it. And scripture is always important but almost nowhere in Scripture does someone roll open a scroll, point to a line, and everyone goes, oh, yep, that's it, settled. Okay? They have to work it through. Um, because if you just, you know, if you kind of go to a very simplistic Scripture set it, that settles it. Sometimes you get in dangerous places. Uh, I forgot to look this up. Uh, you know they have calendars where there's like a Bible verse a day, right? 365 verses. Uh, there's one classic one that people talk about online it has a verse from Matthew, I think chapter 3 or 4, and it says, um, bow to me and all this shall be yours, or something like that. 
And it's like, oh, that's so inspiring. By, you know, bow to God and he will give you all that you need. Except for the scripture is about Satan. And Satan is telling Jesus in, the, in his wilderness temptations, bow to me and I'll give you whatever you want, right? There's no context there. Scripture's always processed. It always goes through a filter. By the fact that you are reading it in a human language that's not even the language it started with, it's been processed by the translators, and then as you read it into English, you're processing your brain. I mean, it's just always filtered. And so, yes, we value Scripture. But when it comes to how do we know things about the world, it's just not as simple as point to a verse and it fixes everything most of the time. Um, second of all, I don't think that we have to be at war with science, right? You have sort of these Christians that get all worked up about, you know, you can't believe scientists as if scientists are bad people. I know lots of scientists. Some of you are scientists in a way, right? Like you're good people. And the thing about it is when you, uh, the, the psalmist admits that one of the ways you learn about the world is you look at nature. Okay. This is a very simplistic way of saying doing science, right? Uh, it doesn't sound like science when he talks about how the sun comes up like a champion ready to run his race. But still, he was looking around. And he said, I notice the sun comes up in the east every day. It goes down in the west every day. And that tells me something about the universe. Looking to nature is not a bad thing. Trying to understand the natural world is not a terrible thing. The psalmist tells us that it's a way that we can learn. Uh, third little mini lesson here. Um, sometimes we have to do reverse logic on some of this. Remember I said how the word of God brings us sustainability and life and joy and all these really great things in this psalm? Um, sometimes when it comes to something you think God said, you need to do the reverse math to see if God really said that. Does that make sense? If the things that God said bring life, joy, and peace, and goodness— and you're doing something you think God wants you to do and is bringing nothing but disaster and decay and nastiness and ugliness in your life, it's possible that you misunderstood God, right? There's a reverse logic there that can happen. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that suffering is not part of God's will. I think it is sometimes. I'm not saying this is not a health and wealth thing. I'm not saying that every person who follows God is going to have lots of money and never gets cancer and all this stuff. That's bizarre. It's not true. But there's a flip side in which we can look at things like the fruits of the Spirit, right? But the Bible tells us when the Spirit's in us that there's certain fruit. This is the way it looks. If you're doing something that you think God wants you to do, and in the end, you are not becoming more loving, joyous, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, or self-controlled by doing that thing, you probably should reevaluate if that's really God's idea. Okay. There's this sense in this passage that the word of God is a sweet, beautiful honey that brings goodness to your life. And if serving God makes you a miserable so-and-so, it might not be that you're serving in the way he's, you're supposed to. Um, number four. In the end, we do trust God's will over ourself, right? So there's the logic part here, but that logic part admits that sometimes the logic is faulty. Okay, if you're in a place where you're like, I think this really might be God's will, but I really don't like it. That's a great sign that it's something you're supposed to be doing. Okay, that tension of like, oh, I don't want to is often something we have to push through in order to do the right thing. Um, generosity often works this way. Uh, you know, we live in a culture that's very consumer based, right? So our brains being raised in that consumerism are not going to naturally go, oh, giving is a great thing to do. 
but it's something that we learn and God's word goes, no, trust me, this is good for you. And we do it his way. We find out, oh yes, that does bring benefit to my life. Giving is better than receiving. And so there's times where we do have to trust God in what we go, uh, what we go through and how we deal with stuff. Um, in the end, I just want to end with these words. Uh, we live in a world where we can be really confused about what's true and what's not true and what we can trust and what we can't trust and what's real and not. And the psalmist talks a little bit about the things that grounds his or her experience. But then in the end, there's this beautiful note of humility. As I go through all this stuff, I'm going to mess up. I can't always trust my own faculties. So, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, God. Help me do it the right way. You're getting lots of information thrown at you all the time. You live in an unprecedented era of access to information. But it's also information that's no longer filtered. Okay? A lot of what you read now it sometimes is literally created by computer algorithms, okay? I mean, there's no editor involved. There's no process. There's no study. You don't have to have a degree. Any idiot with a keyboard can put something in front of your face. And that can be hard to process. In all of those things, we can look to nature to see the nature of God. We can look to God's word to give us guidance and to help our lives be better. And in the end, we just process it the best we can, humbly asking that we do it in a way that honors God. All right. Uh, Q&A. So on that, as far as how your feelings affect how you come to know and learn, I think um, when we hear there, you know, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, uh, I would not make that too cerebral of a thing. I think some of those meditations of the hearts are feelings as well, right? That those are, are there. Um, one of the other ways that you can process this, if you're interested more in this topic of what Christians think about how you know things, um, there's a classic way of thinking of this called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Why they name it that, I don't know. But Well, I know. It's because there's four sides of it, and it's named after John Wesley. But anyways, there's a famous uh, Wesleyan quadrilateral, and it talks about four ways that we learn. And three of them kind of overlap here, and the fourth one, they... Um, it's interesting that's not here, but it doesn't matter. The, the, the four ways that you learn are there's scripture, there's um, personal experience, there is um, tradition, the tradition of the church. That's the element that's kind of missing here. And then there is uh, ration, how you think about things. Okay, and so the experience part kind of fits with this nature, experiencing nature, some of those feelings you talk about. I think that would be on their experience side. And so that's been a helpful way for many Christians to think about how we know things, is it's what we experience in our life, what we think in our heads, what we hear from Scripture, and what the history of the church tells us. Um, which, and it's just another kind of piece that I think would include some of those feeling things.